credit scores, down payments, interest rates. Car buying can be a numbers game, but you don't have to be a math expert to get the keys to your dream car. Just use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. Crunch your numbers and get personalized results so you know exactly how much you'll pay each month for your car. It's like having a magic wand for your wallet. Presto! The car you've been wanting is now within reach. So hit the road and leave your calculator at home. Auto Trader. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry Jerome Roland over there. So this is Stuff You Should Know. <laughs> is that Frankenstein? You <laughs> is that Frankenstein or what? No. You got your arms extended like it is. No, those aren't arms. Those are flippers. Oh, I see. I'm a, I'm a monster. Okay, that was a groundskeeper <laughs> Willie. Close. Yeah, that was right, pretty good. Right show. country. <laughs> are we? Are you doing like a Loch Ness monster impression? Man, you're good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I use the powers of deduction, like Sherlock Holmes did in the Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Ooh, look at that little bit of foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, we covered a bit of this. Everyone we know mm-hmm. in uh, Sea Monsters four years ago, but we felt this monster was so great that, or she, perhaps. Yeah, maybe. Nessie deserved her own space. Let's just go with there. Sure, why not? Right. So, um, yeah, I went back. I was like, I, I, I feel like we definitely did a Loch Ness episode, but no, it, it's just a little little passage in the Sea Monster episode. So mm-hmm. we'll flesh that out a little bit, okay? Sure. So, Chuck, let's go back about 10,000 years. Ooh. Okay? Okay. We need a lot of kerosene in the Wayback Machine. Yeah. And human... Uh, Excrement? Farts. <laughs> Can I say that? I, well, you just did. All right. We'll see if that stays. So human farts and kerosene apparently now power the Wayback Machine. <laughs> oh, it always did. Uh, maybe Jerry will add some extra sound effects. <laughs> so here we are, and we're actually chucking the land that will become Scotland. Mm-hmm. In a few thousand years. Um, And if you'll look right there, right there, there's a glacier retreating. It's melting. As it's melting, it's filling up this gouge in the earth. And this gouge, Chuck, is eventually going to be called Loch Ness. That's right. And this gouge, my friend, as you know, is, is not huge as far as square miles go, but it's very, very deep. It is. It's like, uh, so Loch Ness is like long and narrow. Mm-hmm. And it, it, like, it, it was created when an ice sheet gouged the rocky earth in Scotland 10,000 years ago. And then the ice melted and filled it in, basically like I just said. And it, it was a deep gouge, not very wide, um, but it's like th- deeper than the North Sea, yeah. which surrounds Scotland. It looks like uh, 36 kilometers or 23 miles long. Mm-hmm. And then um, most recently... The newest deepest depth is measured at close to 900 feet, which is staggering. Yeah, it's um, so it's like a thousandth the size of Lake Michigan, but it's three and a half times deeper than Lake Erie. Man, that's deep. It is very, very deep. For a lake. It's also really dark, too, because sure. the, the runoff from the land around it is very peat-rich, which is black. And so uh, that that runoff goes into the lake, and it turns the lake a very, very dark color. So it's like it looks mysterious. Like, you can look at Loch Ness. I've never been there personally, aside from this <laughs> time now that we're here. Sure. Um, but from what I understand, it is a, uh, a like a, a nice, mysterious-looking lake. Yeah, and it, uh, I mean, I've always thought it looked creepy, but it's beautiful, really. But there's something about deep, dark, and, uh, you know, re- reputed monsters that'll do that to you over the years. Yeah, you know, like lakes in Georgia. I don't, I, th- I heard once there's no 
a natural lake in Georgia that every single lake in Georgia is man-made by power com- by the power company. As Have far you heard as, of that? I mean, I don't know. As far as I know, that's true. There may be there may be a natural lake somewhere that I don't know about in the mountains. Mm-hmm. But I think they're supposedly all Georgia power lakes, aren't they? Uh, that's that's what I understand. And every single one of them, I mean, they're they're no deeper than like 30, 40, 50 feet. It's not very deep at all as no. far as lakes go. And a lot of them have like flooded structures. Like they built a dam and like the water built up around it and flooded like towns or yeah, whatever. Yeah, for sure. Like there's a Gulf station at, at um, under Lake Lanier, I believe, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there are, yeah, automobiles supposedly in old remnants of houses under a lot of these lakes. It's like, uh, mm-hmm. oh, brother, where art thou when they flooded the valley? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Same thing. So when you're, when you're swimming in a lake in Georgia and it's just like 30, 40, 50 feet deep, you can just feel everything underneath you. Imagine what it must be like swimming in a lake and feeling that there's 900 feet between <laughs> you and the bottom of this lake and what all is there. Yeah, you could, I don't know, I feel like you could probably sense that feeling. Right. So if you put all this together, you can kind of say, well, of course people are saying that that there's something in, in Loch Ness. You can just look at it and think there's got to be something hiding under there. And apparently that's been the case for many, many thousands of years from what we understand. Uh, yeah. I mean, this was – I had no idea that this went back that far. But there were these people um, way back in the day called the, the Picts, P-I-C-T-S. Uh, and they were a tattoo-covered tribe – who were fierce warriors, and uh, the Romans named them uh, painted ones, I guess, because of their tattoos. Mm-hmm. And they carved these. Um, I, I guess they're just like uh, it says standing stones, but what are they, like little carving, like clay, like uh, wall carvings. They're, no, they're like a, it's a freestanding carved stone that has like um, pictures of animals on them. But is it like a sculpture? No, it's like a flat stone that okay. they used as basically like a canvas, but it's it's a it's a stone. It's a freestanding stone. All right, because so, I saw the pictures, but they were so close up you couldn't really mm-hmm. uh, get that big image. But uh, long story short, they were actually you know animals and things like everyone else that drew on cave walls. You would draw what's around you, mm-hmm. and everything can pretty much be explained except for this one. They carved the Loch Ness monster. We'll just go ahead and say it. <laughs> yeah, it looks it looks like kind of a seahorsey kind of thing, yeah. or you know. And this article, um, one of the articles we used was uh, from Nova PBS's Nova series, and um, they basically point out that if you look at all the other carvings mm-hmm. that the Picts made, they're immediately identifiable what animal they were they were drawing. Sure. With this particular one called the Picked Beast, no one has any idea. And they're like, oh, okay, well, it was a Loch Ness Monster that they drew. Right. Uh, or an elephant that's swimming. Maybe. Which, um, well, I don't want to spoil it, but elephants do swim a long distance. Yeah. <laughs> Th- that's the thing that, that connects the uh, the two episodes today, isn't it? That's right. Swimming elephants. Who'd have thought? That one thing. So the the pics, at least as far as fifteen hundred years ago, uh, were drawing s- pictures of sea monsters around Scotland. And there's a lot of legends of like sea monsters that we talked about in the sea monsters episode in Scotland in general, not just Loch Ness. Like, yeah, they're um, crazy for them. Yeah, they really are, and they have all sorts of scary um, stories behind them, like uh, Boy, the that water. One. The water kelpie. Yeah, that was that frightened me reading it at my desk. Right, where the the water kelpie will come up and say, "Hey, kids, you want to ride on my back through <laughs> through the lock? It's going to be fun." Sure. And because all the Scottish kids sound like that, and they jump on and they're immediately stuck to the beast, which takes them down to the depths of the lock, oh, and they man. all drown. And then Chuck, and then I think you should take it from here. <laughs> which part? Their hands that, become stuck and they're. Right, and they drown and die, but yeah. then what happens the next day? Oh, <laughs> yeah, this is, I'm not quite sure how this happens, but their livers wash ashore the next day. So I guess the beast likes to eat every all of the child except for the liver. I, I guess so. Which I get. I don't like liver either. No, I don't like liver myself. Especially well, kid liver. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's gross. Which you would think would be delectable, but no. Yeah, no. So, um, that, so 1,500 years ago, Loch Ness monster possibly with the picks. We fast forward about 1,000 years beyond that, 
There was a, a saint named St. Columba who showed up in Ireland and said, Hey, heathens, ha- have, have you ever seen any pamphlets or brochures about Christianity? I have some I can give you. And converted the Scots to um, Christianity in like yeah. fi- 565, I think, around that time. And there's a story of St. Columba who was uh, going to visit a Pictish king and um, said, on the way, stopped at the lock and and looked out on the lock and there was some Scottish guy swimming and St. Columba saw a monster swimming toward the guy as if to attack him and held up his hand and said, in the name of God, I command you to turn around and swim away. And apparently the monster did. And this really, I guess, extended St. Columba's credibility among the picks. Yeah, and I think we could just end the show right there. There you go. That's the Loch Ness Monster. (laughs) Proven by history. Right. Uh, And then, uh, flash forward again, um, there was a BBC correspondent named Nicholas Witchell. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people who, over the years, we'll talk about a lot of them who have really gotten into this, um, like quit their jobs and this became their job kind of thing. Yeah, like it gets under your skin. Yeah, uh, under your your locky, beastly skin. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and he wrote a book in 1974 called The Loch Ness Story, and he ended up digging up about a dozen or so references uh, pre-20th century to some sort of monster out there. Yeah, and it really started to pick up weirdly in like the the late, the second half of the 19th century, and there, it was sporadic. But the year of the Loch Ness Monster, the year the Loch Ness Monster became... Part of the public consciousness was 1933, though, for sure. That sounds like a great place to take a break. Oh, boy. Okay, let's do it. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Chuck, so I said 1933 was the year that the Loch Ness Monster kind of hit the global scene, like really made the the world party. <laughs> yeah, and for a good reason. They finally built a road that went around the uh, the shore on the north side specifically. Mm-hmm. So you could – all of a sudden you could drive on this lock and you could look at it and stare at it and eventually see something if you spend enough time there. And in April, that happened. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. McKay uh, were local to the region. They were driving home, and they saw what they described as the most extraordinary form of animal rolling and plunging on the surface. Uh, That was written up in the Inverness Courier. 
and they used the word monster for the first time. And so yep. the Loch Ness Monster was officially born. And that whole year, I mean, that was in the in April, that whole year there were different sightings and just kind of the, the fever really – uh, hit a fever pitch. The fever hit a fever pitch. <laughs> it was pretty feverish. <laughs> Very quickly that year. Yeah. So uh, there was something else that happened in 1933, too, that I've seen a lot of people point to as potentially something that kind of kept the, the media interest going, was that King Kong was released. Yeah. Basically worldwide in 1933. There you have it. And there's like a whole thing about, you know, this that whole forbidden island where King Kong lives where like dinosaurs are still alive yeah. and stuff like that. And a lot of people point to, you know, being exposed to that as kind of keeping this like bringing it to that fever pitch, you know? Yeah, I mean, there were more eyewitness sightings supposedly. A motorcyclist saw one on like crossing the road supposedly. Uh, they offered up um, a circus, offered up a reward of 20,000 pounds. People were camping out and kind of, you know, just kind of waiting for Nessie to appear. Mm-hmm. And then finally in December, uh, the London – and this story, you're going to want to re- listen closely and then put a pin in it because it will come back to haunt us later. Mm-hmm. Or not us, but, you know, the, the show. The world party. <laughs> uh, but the London Daily Mail hired an actor, a director, and a big game hunter – this is a great name. Mar- all, rolled, all rolled into one. <laughs> yeah, Marmaduke Weatherell. Great name. And said, listen, dude, you have all these skills. You are a, a director, an actor, and you, you know your way around the forest and the lake. So <laughs> get out there and see what you can do. He said that was the most bizarre pep talk anyone's ever given me. <laughs> He's like, I know all these things. Right. But I appreciate it anyway. So, the, yeah, they, the Daily Mail sent him up there to figure out what was going on. This was December, did you say? Yeah, December of 33. So, um, and again, this whole thing started in April and it had been building and building. And then by the time, so the Daily Mail, they were like, you know, basically like the Daily Mail is now from what I understand, like super, um, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying. <laughs> it's the Daily Mail. I don't really think you have to put it any other way. Well, are they like a tabloid? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. For I mean, sure. I always get the those UK rags confused on which ones are like, you know, tabloidy and which ones are reputable. They were printing clickbait before computers were around. Before they even knew what that was. And they're like, why are we calling it clickbait? Yeah. Like, what's a mouse? They called it thumbbait. <laughs> right. <laughs> Actually, they call them, remember we talked about this in our tabloid episode, they called it like, like, hey, Martha stories, like stories so amazing that they got the, the, the reader to say, hey, Martha, listen to this. Did we do a show on uh, tabloids? You don't remember? <laughs> no. We did. It was a good one. Wow. I know. It's, we should just sit around and listen to old episodes sometime, refresh our memory. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, Weatherell shows up to Loch Ness among, like, a lot of pomp and circumstance. The Daily Mail didn't, like, just quietly send him there. They really promoted this. And he starts searching, and within just a few days, he found something. He found tracks in the mud around Loch Ness. And um, he did his measurements because, again, remember, he's a big game hunter, a tracker, an outdoorsman. And <laughs> an he, actor. He, and an actor. A fit, not, a, not a successful actor. I get the impression that he was like um, uh, kind of an Ed Wood-type actor-director. Oh, okay. Um, but he, uh, he, he calculated that the, the animal that made these tracks— with like, I think, four-toed tracks in the mud, was at least 20 feet long. And this happened in December. He took plaster casts, and he sent them off to the um, the Royal Museum, or no, the Natural History Museum in, in London, to to be analyzed just as Christmas set in. Yeah, so even though this was potentially the you know greatest find, zoological find in the world, in world history, they were right. like, we still have to go on break. Right. On holiday. Bob Cratchit commands it. <laughs> uh, everyone waited. They did come back from holiday. And, uh, you know, monster hunters were all over London that, or all, all over uh, Loch Ness. And they were super excited. And then in January, a zoologist said, um, bad news. Not only is this the footprint of a hippopotamus, because that would have been pretty amazing in and of itself. Right, right, yeah. Like, what's a hippopotamus doing there? Right. But they said, no, 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 it was a taxidermied uh, hippopotamus foot, and it was probably like an ashtray or an umbrella stand. Right, somebody just walks around with <laughs> foot here, footprint here, footprint there, and Weatherell fell for it. 
So I, uh, there's a question of whether he was the perpetrator of the fraud or whether he was, you know, the victim of this fraud. Mm-hmm. But he fell for it, and he was humiliated. I didn't see any um, actual, like, uh, articles, but apparently the Daily Mail, the paper that sent him up there, said, like, him humiliated him yeah. in their in their coverage of the whole thing. So he retreated from public view. He was humiliated and... Um, don't forget Duke Wetherill yeah. because he comes back later. Yeah, and not only did they uh, ruin his good name or his m- mediocre name, at least, <laughs> he uh, the whole incident just sort of put a damper on Nessie for a few decades. Um, yeah. yeah. kind of brought out the crackpots and anyone that had any sightings, uh, they would be dismissed and said, no, it's an illusion, it was a duck or a or a log floating or a swimming deer or something. And it just, it sort of put a big dent in this being taken seriously for a long time. Uh, the impression that I have is that the world was kind of like, fool me once, you know? Mm-hmm. Like they'd gotten all wrapped up in this whole thing. And then, you know, it was proved to be a big fraud. So everybody just abandoned the Loch Ness Monster. Well, most people did. Anybody who seemed legitimate, especially if you were a scientist, the Loch Ness Monster was, was not real. Yeah, but that did not stop uh, just regular human beings and monster hunters to um, to not go there anymore. They were still into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there was a book in 1974 that said more than 4,000 people, uh, you know, have said that they saw something. That's a lot of people. And not only that, but all of the – or a lot of the eyewitness accounts were really similar, and a lot of them were from people that were – you know, there was a Nobel Prize winner. There were scientists and teachers and lawyers and priests. Like, mm-hmm. it wasn't just a bunch of, of uh, kooks like you and I out there. Yeah, there, there was a guy named Dr. Richard Singe. He was a biochemist who won the Nobel Prize who said he saw something. And like you said, they, they kind of bore similar the similarities in these reports. Like, there were humps, at least one or two humps rising above the surface like an overturned boat. Yeah, maybe it um, was an overturned boat. Maybe so. <laughs> Uh, a lot of people reported something with a long, slender neck and a small head rising out of the surface, or rising out from the, the lake. Um, and there was this local doctor named Constance White, who was, um, I think she might have lived in Inverness. She lived around Loch Ness. And she had a lot of friends who had come forward and said, you know, I've seen this. And people just shouted and laughed at them. And they, they were humiliated themselves. And she said, enough of this. I believe there's something there. I think... These these accounts are uh, similar enough that there's it really kind of lends some credence to this idea. And she started collecting all these different reports and and published the reports along with sketches from the people who'd had who's made these reports into a book called More Than a Legend in 1957. And it took the Loch Ness frivolity and turned it back into a potentially um, scientifically studyable thing. Yeah, for sure. It it didn't uh it's not like it fully legitimized it, but no. it kind of reminded people like, hey, it, it's not just a bunch of crackpots out here mm-hmm. um making stuff up. Like there have been some reputable people who have seen very similar things and here they are all collected in one space. So that inspired more people to um uh namely the scientific community to to get involved. Yeah. And uh it happened and um about a 10-year period, there were four different uh, expeditions from Oxford, Cambridge, uh, University of Birmingham, and the BBC that all went out there and did their own uh, expeditions and investigations with um, sonar, which was a a new, I guess a newer technology at the time um, that allows you to use sound to search underwater for something. Mm -hmm. And it basically was a little bit better than someone sitting in their lawn chair with binoculars for hours on end. Which is what people were mostly doing, I guess, in that first wave in the early 30s. Um, They used what they had. Right. Uh, But then, so so Constance White's book also um, kind of gave rise to a second wave of Loch Ness hunters, inspired a lot of people. Um, There was the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau, which set up shop on the shore of the loch and um, kept watch and and led investigations and expeditions for like a decade, I think from 62 to 72. Not bad. No, that's not bad. It's pretty spending ten years looking for the Loch Ness monster. I think you've you've established your bona fides, you know. <laughs> 
And then uh, Tim Dinsdale, uh, was a, he was an aer- aeronautical engineer, and he became kind of a famous Loch Ness hunter because on his, after reading More Than a Legend, that Constant White book, um, he was inspired to go hunt for the Loch Ness Monster. And on his first time out, he caught something very weird moving away from him on the lock in, on film. Have you seen it? Yeah, I've looked at all this stuff. You what do you think? I think some of it looks very interesting. Mm-hmm. The Dinsdale <laughs> film in particular looks pretty interesting to me, too. Yeah, agreed. Yep. I'm not going to go out. Th- well, let's just save. I'll save my judgment. Save it. <laughs> um, but in the, like I said, uh, over the years as technology got better, um, they started using this technology uh, in the 1970s. Um, there was an, a series of expeditions um, sponsored by Academy of Applied Science out of Boston. And they st- were the first people to combine sonar because they were all already using that. Right. Uh, but sonar and underwater photography under the leadership of a guy named Robert Rines, who was a, uh, a <laughs> I love this description, a lawyer trained in physics. Right. And they were using side scan sonar, which we've talked about before. A couple of times over the years. Have we? Yeah, maybe like tabloids episode? treasure hunting or something. Or, oh, okay. Or Barbie. I don't remember. Right. <laughs> One of those. But here, here's the idea there is you combine side scan sonar with uh, and time it along with your underwater photography. Mm-hmm. And if you get um, something, a picture snapped at the same time, you get a, let's call it a ding. I don't know what sound it makes, but... Uh, I assume a side scan sonar dings if something well, swims by. Well, no, side scan sonar. So it makes it sends out a ping or whatever, but it 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 gets um, echoes back from all the different stuff that it bounces off of at different rates, and it creates basically like a picture of the floor of the or of the lake. Yeah, well, I just meant a ding to alert you. I was just oh, I got you. I got you. I see, like a typewriter, <laughs> right, or a microwave. Yeah, but the point is, if you have those two things that uh, like, hey, we got a. a a real picture and then a side scan sonar picture at the same time, mm-hmm. then it has a little bit more credibility all of a sudden. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, it really did. They they hit something on, I think, in June 1975 or sometime in 1975. They, they had the system going, and at the same time that the sonar was showing some, at least one very large object moving, um, they were getting photographs that that when they developed showed some very odd stuff. Yeah, and this is this underwater photography. It's got a strobe light that's um, where, so you can you know see stuff because it is very dark. Mm-hmm. And this thing, like if if you look at these photos, you know it looks like a big triangular sort of diamond shaped fin mm-hmm. or a flipper uh, on a big kind of creature. But you know it's not super detailed, but it does look like something different and interesting. Did you see the other ones that, that came out of that batch? Yeah, I mean, it, it all looks different and interesting. Like, I'm not saying, like, oh, my God, look at that monster, because mm-hmm. I don't know enough about what sort of, you know, weird fish might be in that lake. But it definitely looks weird enough to prompt attention, I think. It looks like a, a big-bellied, long-necked sea monster to me. <laughs> That's what it looks like. All right. You, you used the word monster. I was trying to avoid that. but Well, it looks like a monster of the sea. <laughs> So, so I mean, this was a big deal when they sure. got these. This was these were respected scientists carrying out a a, a sober, level-headed expedition to look oh, for the Oh, I bet they were drinking monster. a little bit. Let's be honest. A sober-ish, <laughs> level-headed-ish uh, expedition. And when they came came with these uh, these pictures, when they developed them, like they the again, the world was like, "All right, fool me once, wait a few years." Let's go again. That's the that's the mantra of the world, especially in the 70s. Like, I love that this happened in 1975 because the world was like, which story should we pay attention to today? The haunted house in right. Amityville or the <laughs> or Loch Ness the, monster photos? Or what the else? Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. I love the 70s. Yeah. They were the greatest decade ever. It's so great. And then they're like, nah, who cares about any of that? Let's go to a key party. Um, So Rhines, he had uh, his distinction on his project was important because he had a couple of, while he was fairly reputable, he had a couple of really reputable scientists that backed him up. Um, This guy named Harold Doc Edgerton Mm -hmm. uh, from MIT, and he's the inventor of side scan sonar. So I think he 
probably totally loved that they were using his equipment. He said, well, at first he was not, he was not on board, which makes his finally coming on board even more legitimate. He was like, no, nah, I think you're a crackpot. And then he saw that stuff. He's like, this is, this seems legitimate. He said it looks like a, a flipper of a monster. He said it looks like a monster <laughs> of the sea. <laughs> uh, and then this other guy, Sir Peter Scott, who was uh, a naturalist, um, and they both um, got behind Rhines, which was mm-hmm. a very big deal, uh, so much so that Rhines was actually uh, able to present evidence at the House of Commons in London, <laughs> and people were starting to take this like really seriously. Yeah, and here in the States, that would be like testifying before Congress about the sea monster that you found <laughs> in, you know, Lake Havasu or something like that. Yeah. I- I'm sure there's one in Lake Havasu. Oh, I'm sure. There's several. Um, which is great that we said that because now we're going to get a million emails telling us the name of the monster in Lake Havasu. <laughs> it's the Havasu monster. Is that ungrateful to say something like that? I don't think so. I think it was. I'm going to take it out. All right. So, um, the the... I don't. I don't know if he actually presented the findings or not, but they definitely wrote up Sir Peter Scott and Robert Rhines wrote up a um, a paper, uh, an academic paper. It wasn't peer reviewed, but it was published in the journal Nature, which is. I mean, there are two big English language um, science journals, Science and Nature, and they got theirs published in one. And it's it was in the opinions and comments section, sure. But science <laughs> letter to the editor, <laughs> basically the crackpot corner. Yeah, but the 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 um, the I mean, na- Nature published it. They could have been like, no, this is sure. ridiculous. And these guys, they they published this paper from what I can tell earnestly like they meant it right so um in this paper they gave nessie its uh, scientific binomial name yeah and this is after we should say that um the, the naturalist mr scott uh said oh by the way not only are we do we believe what rhines is doing but i think that nessie is a plesiosaur Mm-hmm. Um, this is a marine reptile that we thought went extinct 65 million years ago. Which, so that did not help the case. No, much. It, it didn't. And I think I get the impression that Rhines was kind of like, uh, we didn't talk about you saying this publicly, but um, Scott kind of jumped the gun from what I understand. But he did say that, and that really turned a lot of these the scientific establishment types that Rhines was trying to basically get on board to try to find the Loch Ness Monster turned them off. Yeah, but nevertheless, they did give it that name, um, Nesoteris uh, Rhomboteryx. Man, if you ever are at a trivia night and they ask you what that is, <laughs> I will be so ashamed of every single one of you if you miss that. That would be a tough trivia question, though. That's a great one, though. Yeah. Nesoteris Rhombateryx is the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. I think that's one of the better trivia questions I've ever heard. All right. Well, uh, all trivia masters out there, take note. Mm-hmm. Use it at will. Um, and thank us afterward and direct people to stuff you should know on uh, the iHeart Radio podcast app or wherever they- you listen to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Chuck. I think you're going to get like a, a gift card from Target or something for that. Uh, so they give it this name mainly. It's not like they're like, hey, let's just name this thing. They did it really because uh, there was a new conservation law in the UK that said a species won't be protected if it does not have uh, a binomial and a common name. So they said just to cover ourselves, just in case Nessie's a real thing, let's go ahead and name, uh, name this lady. Right. So, um, the, again, after that, after Sir Peter Scott said, it's a dinosaur, which, again, it's not the most far-fetched thing in the world. Um, it, it's like the coelacanth was thought to be extinct for tens of millions yeah, of years. Good and point. they started finding them off of the coast of Africa. So it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility. It wasn't like this guy was like, well, it's aliens, obviously. It's a giant <laughs> alien. It's a sea alien. Yeah. Um, it, like there, there was, from what I understand, they, they were earnest and they were trying to do this legitimately. Although one of the MPs, uh, in Scotland pointed out that, uh, Nesoteris Rhombateryx is an anagram for monster hoax by Sir Peter S. And, <laughs> and that was for, pretty good. For many years, everybody was like, well, yeah, Scott at least hadn't bought into it. But he responded to this years later with like, do you really think that if I, 
if I'd wanted to do that, I couldn't have also fit in the C-O-T-T in Scott. And he didn't really answer the question, but I think the impression that I got from like actual Loch Ness monster hunters is that he was he was earnest and the anagram was unintended. Yeah, that's pretty. I mean, I don't think that was the deal, but it is pretty interesting that you can form that anagram specifically. It is. Pretty interesting. Monster hoax by Sir Peter S. It's pretty but, specific. But, I mean, what a betrayal because Robert Rines was a true believer. Oh, and yeah. if that's what Scott was doing, he was one of the bigger putzes <laughs> that the British naturalist community ever ever produced. Which, by the way, did you get that uh, email about Yiddish? No, uh uh-uh. Apparently putz is a very bad word. Oh, oh, well, I... <laughs> Is it like Fanny in the UK? No, it's just uh, th- this nice lady wrote us about uh, Yiddish words and sayings, and she's like, most people don't realize that schmuck and putz are, are not the nicest words. What does putz mean in, like, American English? Mm, we'll discuss offline. Okay. <laughs> I really want to know. I'm not sure I can wait. That's okay. You can wait. So, Can you, can you make some hand gestures? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you the initials. Okay. So in the 80s... Um, Things started to ramp up a little bit more. Um, there were more sonar hits coming around. Uh, in 1987, in the late 80s, a uh, one million pound, mm-hmm. uh, they spent a million bucks for a week-long exploration called Operation Deep Scan. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was, uh, once again, the um, Loch Ness Project, who were science-based. What they were doing, though, and th- I thought this was interesting, they weren't like, uh, listen, we're searching for Nessie, they says, what we're going to do is just go search for uh, anomalies with uh, the sonar and see if we can start ruling some things out. Yeah, and they they used like 24 boats, from what I understand, to like sweep in unison using side, side scan sonar the whole lock like at once. They were just going slowly back and forth over the lock. Mm-hmm. And remember that side scan sonar creates like a, a picture, an image of the of the the, lo, the lake floor, and so they were really coming up with some good stuff. Most of the stuff they found was stationary objects, so obviously that's not it. But they did find three things that, from what I understand to this day, have never been fully explained. That were um, obviously moving targets that were large. That they just don't they don't know what they were. They have no idea. Yeah, pretty interesting. Uh, and this carried over, of course, into the early 90s. Uh, another BBC guy named Nicholas Witchell um, organized project. Uh, how do you pronounce that? Ur- Urquhart? I was going with Urquhart. Oh, Urquhart. I like that. I do too. Silent H. Yeah. But also the qua. Sure. <laughs> project <laughs> Urquhart, which was uh, a, a real scientific, and the first one, um, scientific extensive study mm-hmm. of the biology and geology of the lake itself. Yeah, Nicholas Witchell, he was leading this thing. They weren't looking for the monster, but he was one of the, he was that guy who wrote that 1974 book about the monster. Yeah, people kind of come and go in this story. It's interesting. Uh-huh. It really is. It's got it's a tight knot of of like a ball of worms writhing <laughs> together or something. Uh but he did while he was doing the the study of biology and geology, he did find uh another underwater moving target. Followed it for a few minutes, lost it. But it was just yet another kind of unexplained large moving mass. Mm-hmm. And there was a sonar expert named Arnie Carr who was aboard that expedition who said, I would say that this was biological in nature. Obviously, it was moving. It was about 15 feet long, about the size of a small whale. Yeah. So you, I love so, they shouldn't compare it to things. <laughs> they're like, it sort of looked like an overturned boat. And they're like, all right, well, maybe it was. Or the... The fin looked like a large oar. Right. Or a small otter. Like, stop saying that. Right. All you're doing is making me think, well, yeah, that's probably what it is then. Yeah, Occam's but it, razor. Pro- it probably wasn't a small whale. I don't know. Is it a sea monster? It's a it's a <laughs> monster of the sea. Okay. So, um, again, I don't know if you guys are paying enough attention, but just slowly over the years, people have continued to uh, show up at Loch Ness, launch expeditions, come up with some things that couldn't be explained. And the most recent one happened in 2016 when a group of researchers from Norway showed up to the loch to um, explore a, under an expedition and try to find the Loch Ness monster. And they actually found something using side scan sonar. <laughs> yeah. 
plane. Did you see the picture? Yeah, it looks like a sea monster just kind of laying on the bottom of the lake there. That's exactly what it looked like. So they were, I don't know if they thought, well, geez, I mean, did it die? Is it sleeping? What's going on with this thing? Because it wasn't moving. And uh, I don't know how they figured it out, but it turns out that it was a prop from a movie from 1970. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) the private life of Sherlock Holmes, Billy Wilder movie. Mm -hmm. And if you look at this monster in that movie, it looks like the Loch Ness Monster. And when they were done, they just uh, basically let the air out of the humps and sank it. Yep. And it just (laughs) laid there for like 50 years. Oh, man. But so the reason good. the reason why it looked like the Loch Ness monster, even so much that just the sonar image of this thing lying on its side at the bottom of the lake, this prop, mm-hmm. looked like the Loch Ness monster, is because we all have the exact same image of the Loch Ness monster. And what a lot of people don't realize is that that image comes from one specific photograph that was published in 1934, and we will talk about that after this message break. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was bought it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So you left us with quite a cliffhanger. The very famous, dare I say infamous, uh, photo of Nessie that... Looks like a uh, someone with their finger sticking out of the water and their arm. Really? Is that what it looks like to you? Sure. It looks like a monster of the sea to me. <laughs> it is the most famous picture of the Loch Ness Monster, which is interesting because uh, I think that stuff from 1975 looks way more realistic and, you know, potentially provable. Well, this was 1934. Give them a break. No, I know. And that's why it took the world by storm because it's the oldest one, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's if you type in Loch Ness Monster image, this is the first thing that you're going to see. Yep. Generally. And it's, it's what everybody's seen. It's like the, the first thing they teach you in school is they show everybody a picture of the Loch Ness Monster. Say, this is the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. N- now on to reading, you know? <laughs> so the, this picture's origin was um, it first showed up on the cover of the London Daily Mail in 1934. This was the year after Duke Wetherill um, had had been kind of denounced and humiliated. And, I mean, very quickly after that whole thing, this picture appears. And even though people had said, like, no, this is not a, this thing's a, a, um, 
the Loch Ness Monster is not real. Um, this picture really kind of kept interest going. Like, the world didn't just completely walk away from it. Like you said, like, everyday people were still interested in it. And it was largely because of this picture that was published in 1934. Right. So the photo has a pretty good story in and of itself. Um, mm-hmm. It was sold to the Daily Mail by a surgeon from London named R. Kenneth Wilson. He said, I took this picture, saw a big commotion out in the water, and I saw a sea monster, and I took a photo, and everyone was like, this guy's a surgeon. Why would this guy make this thing up? It's got to be real. Mm -hmm. Skeptics were like, there's no way this thing's real. Of course it's a hoax. Uh, And it took, what, 50 years, basically, 51 Mm -hmm. years, until they actually did scientific analysis of this thing. Yeah. Uh, A man named Stuart Campbell um, and an article in the British Journal of Photography, almost said psychology. Nope. Photography. It's a little different. (laughs) He concluded that uh, he looked at it, did a big study and said, all right, this thing looks real, but it's two to three feet long. And I think it's a bird or an otter. And I think that surgeon knew that. Right. But the reason, the whole reason why so many people were like, this is a real picture is because the guy who supposedly took it, um, R. Kenneth uh, Wilson, right? Like you said, he was a doctor. And so the whole world was like, well, no, this guy's a doctor. Of course he's believable. Because doctors have never done anything wrong. (laughs) Right. Apparently no one had seen the Nick yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Thank you. So, um... (laughs) Finally, uh, even in 1984, when this British Journal of Photography analysis was published, that was mostly kind of like, oh, I knew it, to people who already thought it was a hoax. To the rest of the world and to a lot of Loch Ness uh, monster hunters, like, that that did nothing to delegitimize it. Again, because our Kenneth um, Wilson was a doctor. So, of course, he wouldn't have perpetrated a fraud. And then finally, in 1994, uh, there was a guy who is a Loch Ness monster hunter slash fanatic named Alistair Boyd. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 1994, he basically dropped a bomb on the world and said, the surgeon's photo is 100% fake, and I have this story that explains how. And he basically said, no, it's even among Loch Ness monster hunters like himself, the, the surgeon's photo has been basically debunked by the story that he came up with. Right. So Boyd and his wife, uh, because, you know, I'm sure Boyd was like, hey, uh, this is my new crazy passion, so you have to come with me. (laughs) She rolled her eyes and said, okay. (laughs) So they teamed up, uh, and they did have a large animal sighting in 1979, so they were into it. It's not like they were out to debunk this thing. Mm -hmm. I think they were trying to bunk it. Um, (laughs) They uh, did some research behind the photo. He came across an old newspaper clipping. And the son of, remember we said to put a pin in, in Duke Wetherill, Marmaduke, mm-hmm. his, who was, remember, famously duped, um, supposedly, with that hippo foot and sold out by the Daily Mail. Mm-hmm. So they found an old clipping, which his son, Ian, or Ian, I'm not sure how he pronounces it, said that that photo was a hoax. And Boyd was reading this article uh, in 1975, and a couple of very important little details kind of stuck out to him. Yeah, the so Ian Wetherill had said that there was a guy named Maurice Chambers involved in the hoax. And Maurice Chambers is the guy that our Kenneth Wilson said originally when the first that photo first came out 60 years before, Maurice Chambers was who he was going to visit. So it would be really weird that Ian Wetherill would know who Maurice Chambers was and that our Kenneth Wilson, Dr. Wilson, would know him as well. That was one thing. Then the other thing is the picture he described was a version of that photograph that was only published once, yeah. right? Because it's the the one that he described showed a little bit of land, and the picture that we've all seen had the land cropped out. Yeah, pretty. I mean, it, it's a detail that not many people would have noticed, right? But Boyd was like, "Hey, this thing was only published once in 1934, so this guy either has a freakishly good and weird memory, mm-hmm. or he's the one that took the picture to begin with, because that yeah. detail no one else would have known." 
It's not it's not like proof positive no. or anything like that, but it's they're pretty pretty good points to to kind of start to suspect. So it was enough to get him to go try to find out more. Because remember, this is the '80s, and it, the article was from the '70s, and apparently people hadn't paid much attention. So we went to go find Ian Wetherill and found out that he was dead. Yeah. Uh, so he went and found another guy who was mentioned in the article, Christian Sperling, who was Duke Wetherill's stepson, right. and he had been involved as well. And apparently, according to Alistair Boyd, when he went and tracked down Christian Sperling, Sperling confessed to him. Yeah, at 93 years old, uh, it sounds like a sort of a deathbed thing. <laughs> he was like, it, it was us the whole time. He's like, also, I have something else to tell you. I, I hit a person with my car and drove off once. They're like, no, 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 who cares? Yeah. Let's talk about the, this picture. <laughs> um, so, here's the deal. Uh, he said, because of the way that Duke, um, I guess, step stepdad, that was a stepdad? Yes. Yeah, Duke was a stepdad. So the way my stepdad was treated by the Daily Mail and sold out and made to look foolish, uh, he went out to get even. It really stuck in his craw. And get revenge. So he enlisted his son and, and myself uh, when I was a young boy to go out, build a model monster onto a toy submarine, and staged this photograph, with, yep. which included, you know, they included the background and part of the, you know, the, not the zoomed-in look. You can't really tell that it's Loch Ness, but in the original photo, like we said, you could see it, and they did that on purpose as mm-hmm. proof that it was Loch Ness. Yep, and then they, they got through Maurice Chambers, the common friend. They somehow persuaded Dr. Wilson to take the film, have it developed, and then pretend like he had— taken the picture and sell it to the Daily Mail, basically act as a front man to this whole ruse. Again, probably the greatest front man you could have ever gotten sure. because the whole world for decades was like, nope, this guy wouldn't have been party to a fraud. And he was party to a fraud. And I could not find any explanation for why he would have been. Because, I, I mean, they call it the surgeon's photo rather than the um, Wilson photo yeah. because he really wanted... To, to back away from it, which I think legitimized it more in some people's minds. Yeah. But he, uh, I, I have no idea why he joined up on this this hoax, but he did. I wonder if he had something on him. Well, a lot of people actually say they still don't buy it. They yeah. still don't buy that, 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 that it doesn't make sense that Wilson would have been a part of this, that some people even, one guy cited a toy expert yeah, that this said... Is... A submarine, a toy submarine from the 30s probably wouldn't have, 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 you know, done the trick. Yeah, that sounds like the the worst kind of internet pedant. Right, case closed. Actually, toy submarines would have looked more like this. (laughs) Right. Um, But sure, people have tried to poke various holes in, in the story that it's a fake over the years, which is interesting too. But it's really saying something though also to keep in mind... Alistair Boyd, the guy who who told the world the story of how this this famous photo of Loch, the Loch Ness monster was hoaxed, he's like that does nothing to his belief. He's like I'm sure is yeah I'm more sure of than I'm sure of anything that there's a something in Loch Ness, and I think he said something like he would. If he were a wealthy man, he would spend the rest of his life trying to catch another glimpse of it. Yeah. Because like we said, you know, it kind of gets under your skin when 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 you, like, get into the Loch Ness Monster. So, uh, in the 1990s, um, th- here are some more explanations because here's the deal. Like, like, you have to prove something exists, not disprove or wait, not prove – that it, like the burden of proof should be on people that say this is a thing. Yeah, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Yeah, or so evidence. there have been people over the years that have tried to explain it as other things, and like maybe people are seeing something, but what they're really seeing is blank. Uh, a man named Steve Feltham in the 1990s, he's one of these guys that you know kind of became a well, I don't know about obsessed I'm not going to say that but mm, no you could call him obsessed became so interested that he quit his job and did this for 30 years uh but he said here's what I think it is he said I think it's a it's a wells catfish and if you look up wells w e l s catfish mm-hmm. these are you know everyone knows catfish can get large but these are european catfish that they look uh photoshopped when you look them up online and two or three people holding these things up in Europe, they get larger. They are huge. <laughs> yeah, like, like up to 
Yeah, like, huge. Like 13 feet long, which, by the way, don't forget that one uh, Robert Rhine expedition found something that was the size of a small whale about 15 feet long. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this is what, but this is a this is a really big point. Steve Feltham is saying this. This yeah. guy left his life in the 90s, holds the Guinness record for the longest um, search for Loch Ness. Which is just dumb. It is. Guinness, you know. <laughs> they lost their way a long time ago. They really did. <laughs> so, um, th- th- like, he's saying, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a sea monster. I don't even think it's an undiscovered species. I think it's a, a giant catfish that lives in the lake. Um, that's a big deal that he's saying that. And that seems to be a trend among Loch Ness um, enthusiasts that it's kind of turned a little more toward, hey, let's let's use our uh, time and effort and energy to figuring out how it's not a sea monster, um, which is a really big change. And not just like Loch Ness monster searches, but it says a lot about the the world too, you know? Yeah, and I think this Wells catfish would certainly explain all of those unexplained underwater moving uh, side scan sonar images. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're not the most detailed things in the world. It's not a photograph. Right. Uh, and those, these things are, I mean, just look up Wells catfish. They are tremendous and large. Right. Okay. So that's a pretty good explanation. Uh, a less good explanation that we just have to mention though, is that yeah, the elephant thing. <laughs> yeah. There was an historian in 2006 who said, well, you know, I just came across some evidence that circuses traveling through Scotland used to stop and rest at, at Loch Ness, <laughs> and they would let the animals out to wander around, and elephants love to swim, which is the, the crossover thing between the episodes today, right? Yeah. Um, elephants love to swim, and probably what some of these sightings in the 30s were of the Loch Ness Monster were elephants swimming in Loch Ness. Yeah, com- completely away from the rest of the circus right? and the people that were resting on the shoreline. And then after after he finished, he said, but <laughs> uh, And here's the deal with all the uh, supposed evidence over the years. It's, you know, that stone carving, it's manuscripts from pre-medieval times. It's mm-hmm. um, stories, like real documentary evidence, that these photos and things, none of them, there's no hard evidence. They can all be interpreted as they're explained away as different other things. Yeah, right. And also there's like a, there's a, you know, that whole thing developed where, uh, what, what was it? Sir Peter Scott said it was a plesiosaur, yeah. right? Um, which is uh, an extinct marine reptile, not a dinosaur. It was a marine reptile. Mm-hmm. Other people said no, it was a sauropod, which makes even less sense because a sauropod was a terrestrial um, dinosaur, which had never taken to water. So what would it be doing in Loch Ness? But for decades, those were the, kind of the two conceptions that the Loch Ness monster was a surviving sauropod or a surviving plesiosaur. And there are a lot of problems with those. Number one, both of those, those um, types of animals went extinct tens of millions of years ago. Yeah, you could stop there had it not been for the coelacanth. Right. But we respect the coelacanth, and so we should explore further. Uh, and then you have the problem of the fact that a sauropod is uh, a terrestrial beast that mm-hmm. breathes air. So while it could swim, it would have to come up every few seconds and breathe. Right. And 10 reports a year over the history of, of Loch Ness with, you know, close to a half a million people visiting every year. Right. You would see if this thing has to breathe every few seconds— there would be a lot more sightings than that. Yes. And even if it were a plesiosaur, which again is a marine reptile, they didn't have gills, so they would have to come up for air too. So same thing, right? So the fact that it's actually kind of rare to, for a Nessie sighting to be reported, um, th- that doesn't make any sense because these things would have to come up quite a bit. And we're also, I mean, if it's just one, that means that this thing survived 70 or 60 million years. So it's a 60 million year old animal, which mm. makes zero sense. But some people say, well, no, no, you could have like a continuous line of these things. Could you though? Probably not. And the reason why you couldn't is because the lock is just too small to sustain probably even one plesiosaur or one sauropod, um, let alone that I think 
uh, Sir Peter Scott and Robert Rines in their 1975 paper estimated that you'd have to have about 30 breeding individuals to continue a line, um, I guess, in, in the lake. So there's just not enough food. There's something like 22 tons of biomass or fish for them to eat, and that just would not be nearly enough. Yeah, that's uh, – so if you have, like, let's say 30 of these that are mating and breeding, creating more little Nessies over the years mm-hmm. – and a lake that small, I know it's deep, but it is a pretty small lake, that uh, if you have 30 of these things, let's say conservatively, and they all have to come up and breathe right. every few seconds, you'd see little little fingers popping up out of the water all over the place. And at some point, there would be a bone or a scale or a tooth or a, a whole body something washed up on the shore, and that's never happened. Yeah, and that's a big problem. I mean, despite thousands of people saying, I saw something, and some of their stuff kind of bearing some similarities to one another, despite the the films and the, the photographs and all that, there's not any actual hard evidence, like you said, like a bone or a tooth or something like that, that shows there's something in the lake that it, that is real. Yeah, my money on figuring this out um, last summer in 2018, uh, researchers finally took samples of environmental DNA, eDNA, mm-hmm. and this will tell you, uh, in fact, it did yield about 500 million individual DNA sequences. This will tell you basically anything that has lived in this lake. Right. Maybe not forever, or is it forever? I don't know how far back it would go. As long as it had viable DNA, okay. like it hadn't it hadn't deteriorated yet. So it could be like a, a whatever, a scale of this monster. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has worked before. Uh, I believe it yielded evidence of unknown life when they discovered in a human species called the uh, Denisovans. Yeah. So this works. They have these 500 million sequences, and now they're just— Plowing through them, basically. Yeah, now they have to they have to analyze them and see if anything that hasn't been identified before turns up. It's pretty smart. It's pretty. It's amazing. It's like they took a photograph, a snapshot of all of the DNA that's in Loch Ness right now. It's a great idea. Yeah, and then they're going to sort through it. It it could yield something. Who knows? Like I, I'm not saying like just saying that the thing's not a plesiosaur or not a sauropod or is not even a giant catfish or something like that. It doesn't mean that there's not. It's not possible. There's something there that we we don't know about yet. Yeah. But if if this doesn't show anything, then it should. Well, it never will close the case entirely, but it will for a lot more people, I think. Yeah. And then there's one other really big explanation against, especially with the whole, like, surviving dinosaur thing. The Loch Ness is only 10,000 years old. It's not like it was around before, you know, when the dinosaurs were swimming around and they could have found their way into Loch Ness and as the, as, um, as, as the sea levels uh, lowered and Loch Ness was separated from the sea, they got trapped there yeah. because Loch Ness didn't exist until it was gouged out of the earth by the um, glaciers during the last ice age 10,000 years ago. It's just too young for something like that. Too young. Too young. But, Chuck, if they ever do find it, it will enjoy protection because they drew up like a a protective order, basically, that says that any new species found in the lake, including the Loch Ness Monster, um, if found... The uh, people finding it can take a DNA sample and they have to release it and they have to make sure that it survives. They have to protect it. Pretty neat. It is neat. So do you think, real quick, do you think there's anything in there? Uh, no. <laughs> so nothing we don't know about, you don't think there's anything in there? Well, it depends on if you count a giant catfish as something we don't know about. I would say we know about that. Yeah, I think it I think it's, uh, can be explained. Okay. Um. Have you seen Incident at Loch Ness? No, we talked about it in another another podcast, I believe. Oh, really? Yeah, another episode. I can't remember when, but yeah, we talked about it. I wonder what that would have been about. It may have been in Loch the Ness. Sea Monsters one. I bet, but that's the Werner Herzog. Like, it's worth watching because Werner Herzog is on screen. Right. And anytime you can get him talking or on screen, just <laughs> just watch. Yeah. But it is, uh, it is a mockumentary about Werner Herzog going to make a documentary about uh, Loch Ness. Mm -hmm. And then while they're there, uh, it's a making of a making of, and while they're there, they see unexplained things. 
It's it's good though, huh? It's it's a fun Friday night uh, watch. All right, well, it's, Friday it's not night's high cinema, up. but <laughs> just to listen to Van Herzog, right? <laughs> it's great. Uh, we have ways of making you talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, is it on Netflix? Do you know or Amazon Prime? I have no idea. Well, we'll find out. All right. Well, if you want to know more about Loch, you got anything else? Nope. If you want to know more about Loch Ness Monster, or Loch Ness, or Scotland, or anything like that, go onto the internet. It's a, a really wide and deep resource, deeper than Loch Ness even. <laughs> and since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, this is a listener mail by way of our old friends at Coed. Awesome. Uh, we heard from Anne, our friends, uh, as a reminder, many years ago mm-hmm. when we were just a fledgling podcast. Um, this group, a uh, nonprofit called uh, Coed, uh, Cooperative for Education, mm-hmm. uh, they invited us to go to Guatemala, mm-hmm. uh, which we did, you, uh, uh, me, and Jerry. Yes. Which was a crazy, fun trip. It was. And we learned a lot, and it was very eye-opening in many ways, and we've been kind of working with them unofficially since then. So they have a new drive going on. Um, They are on a mission right now to keep a 1,000 girls from dropping out of school in Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And as a reminder, their their kind of whole jam is to break the cycle of poverty in Guatemala, and the way to do this is through education, because if not for education, then kids at a very young age stop going to school because they need to work and help support their family. Yep. So they're about halfway to that goal, everyone, to keep a 1,000 girls from dropping out of school in Guatemala. And uh, 41 of the Stuff You Should Know Army uh, sponsored a student last year, and that's great. Uh, But we need more of you. Um, In Guatemala, it is the start of the school year, and there are uh, still a few dozen kids waiting to be sponsored. Uh, Sponsoring a student costs $80 a month, or co-ed will pair you with someone else. If you can half-sponsor someone at $40 a month, uh, and to meet the students who need sponsors, which you can actually do online. Mm-hmm. Pretty powerful stuff. Just go to cooperativeforeducation.org. Yep. And uh, we've seen it with our own eyes that they do really good work. So we can vouch for them. And uh, it's money well well donated for sure. Yeah. Or if you want to go down there like we did, they still take groups down there twice a year. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of, you know, very much see it with your own eyeballs. And uh, it's very, very good program. And it's helping the... Uh, the, the whole population, but especially the young women of Guatemala. Yep, and give them the website again, Chuck. It is cooperativeforeducation.org. Okay, so go check it out, everybody. And in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, you can go to uh, stuffyoushouldknow.com and check out our social links. I've got a website, too, called thejoshclarkway.com. And if you want to send an email to Chuck, Jerry, and me, you can address it to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.